then I said, well, what the heck is a national park? Because I never knew before. The demographics of the national parks versus the demographics of the nation, they don't match. And I think at the Grand Canyon, when it comes to, you know, who feels welcome and who, who is belonging, historically, there's been a really narrow vision of who that person is. And if it's calling you, you will get there. Turn up a little bit. Test, test, test. Turn it up, Doug. How would you describe yourself? Have you ever... Okay, we're trying again. Hi, I'm Leslie. I'm Doug. And I'm Becca. We are park rangers on the north rim of Grand Canyon National Park. You're listening to a Behind the Scenery podcast. Today, we're exploring the themes of longing and belonging at Grand Canyon and discussing the question, who feels welcome in national parks? That's right. Now let's start with the question, who feels welcome? Maybe it would be helpful to give our listeners context first, why we're creating a podcast, why we're asking who feels welcome in national parks. So, gosh, we, we showed up here as park rangers on the north room of Grand Canyon, and <laughs> what happened? Well, it was kind of touch and go whether or not we were to even open the visitor center this year. And then we got word uh, late spring that Grand Canyon was canceling all ranger programs. Regardless, there was a huge fire that kind of blew through the area pretty soon after this season went underway. Yeah, we were closed because of COVID-19 to the public. And simultaneous to COVID-19, we were closed because, as I told my mom semi-emotionally on the phone, we were surrounded by fire on our isolated peninsula. What are we going to do as interpretive rangers on the North Rim if we're not going to answer questions in the visitor center, we're not going to be doing nature walks, evening programs. So uh, somebody came up with the idea that maybe the rangers can still be productive and work on a podcast for the park. It's very 2020. Yeah, I think so. And honestly, I think the idea of doing podcasts was appropriate not only for our special but unifying circumstances with the entire globe, but also it kind of ties into the theme of of what we're exploring here. Who feels welcome at national parks? Who has access to national parks? because creating a podcast can hopefully manifest an experience that doesn't require being at Grand Canyon or being at the North Rim in order to be in community with us. Why do you feel like asking who feels welcome at national parks matters to you? Well, because I'm a national park nerd. I love my national parks. I'm so proud to work for the National Park Service that tells, tries to tell all of the stories, the good and bad ugly and everything in between. From my perspective, being in the park profession for my whole adult life, I can't imagine somebody not feeling welcome in a national park. So that's something that needs to be corrected, uh, that uh, there is a segment of people that don't feel welcome in national parks. That's shameful. That should never be. We all need to feel welcome in the national parks to get that a good vibe that is available to all of us to recharge our emotional and our spiritual batteries. 
We have young folks across the country who either do not know about the National Park Service and what it has to offer them, or who have ventured out into green spaces and have been made to feel that uh, either directly or indirectly that they do not belong there. And at the same time, this same group of young people is almost expected to solve the nation's problems in terms of the environment and the climate crisis. There's this huge disconnect between the expectations of these spaces and the realities of these spaces. Mm. How are we going to create a better world for those who come after us if we are not being inclusive and welcoming of the current generation? I think it's important that we interrogate this question, who feels welcome in national parks? Not because we don't know elements of the answer. To me, it, it feels very clear that not everyone feels welcome at Grand Canyon. Not everyone feels welcome on the North Rim and beyond. And so asking the question, who feels welcome, serves as a window to do better and identify that systems of inequity and power that exist in our larger societies perpetuate themselves in our little community here on the North Rim and also in the Park Service, I think. I see this podcast as one tiny little opening for, for progress. When people listen to this podcast, I'd like them to, no, 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 no. I don't want to tell people what to do, but I do want to communicate, hey, these individuals that we interviewed, these amazing people speak for themselves. They don't speak for entire communities or entire demographics of people. When you listen to the guests, keep in mind they are speaking for themselves. And just as I don't speak for every American or every woman out there, our guests do not speak for the entire communities that they hail from. Uh, everyone has their own individual voice that's based on their own personal experiences. And boy, did we get some great interviewees, some guests to lend their voices to this podcast. Incredible human beings. We lucked out. Yeah, okay. no definitely. <laughs> Our four guests are as follows. Audrey Peterman. Salima Benali. Stephen Arnold. Nayadi Shastri. Our guests' individual stories shed some light on the questions we are exploring. I think that's the best part of the whole podcast, is not the Ranger voices, but the, the four guests that brought all these different perspectives uh, to the table. So I, I think the listener is really going to be wow uh, when they get introduced to our four guests and hear uh, the profound things they had to share. So in chatting with these folks, we discovered what it means for these four individuals to feel at home in the natural world. For you personally, when was the moment when you felt connected with the world? Here's what our guest said, referencing poignant experiences at Grand Canyon. Here we were looking forward to seeing the Grand Canyon, which I describe as the Grand Dam, the crown jewel of all the crown jewels. You know, we were, we were not disappointed. In fact, we could not, in our wildest dreams, have imagined anything so wonderful and beautiful. 
you know, we felt like we felt a very strong energy, and it was just very soothing, and at the same time, very inspiring. And the view of the canyon spreading out across all of those acres with the spires and the temples and the chasms and the colors. Oh, wow. It's uh, mind-boggling, breathtaking, awesome, astonishing. No word can describe the Grand Canyon. Every word fails in comparison. And it's good to see in all its different moods, you know, if, if that's a word for it. By moonlight, by sunrise, sunset, in the wind, in the rain, in snow, fogged in, hot days, cold nights. There's a lot to experience there. And um, then you you begin to see how big this this um, entity is in in our in our world. And and it is it's it's a it has a, a grand presence. And we just can't see all of it to know how big it is. We can't see or know its power because it's so incredibly silent. I felt very small, so impressive that you're just this little speck on the edge of a vast abyss. And that's an interesting thing about uh, Grand Canyon. You're on the edge looking down in. And so for an individual like myself being in a wheelchair, I feel like I'm getting the experience that 90% of the visitors are getting. I'm on the edge looking down in. It's just one of those places so special, not just in our nation, but in the world, getting people from all over the world coming to see it. Uh, that uh, love for the, the park grows over time. I remember feeling very, very, uh, there, was this, there was this deep feeling of, anticipations. I was feeling unprepared and feeling like, you know, is this a place that I can really um, engage with in a safe and uh, healthy way? You know, what kinds of materials do I need in order to do this in a safe way? Um, kind of what are what are sort of the norms and uh, cultural norms and social norms and expectations of this space? Um, so I think I was overthinking it a bit and all of those um, thoughts and worries and anxieties sort of melted away the first time I saw the canyon. And- How would you describe yourself? Have you ever felt like an outsider or uncomfortable in the space or othered? Where do you feel at home? And does this intersect with your experience of the natural world? It's time to meet our four guests in full and hear what they have to say. Our first guest is Audrey Peterman, conservationist and author. She and her husband, Frank, are celebrated for their work in encouraging Americans of color to discover and love their national parks. My name is Audrey Peterman. I am a very happy Jamaican-born woman who became a citizen of the United States in the 1980s after experiencing America's wondrous national parks. I had actually been in America for 15 years and 
had not really sought to become a citizen. But when I went out and saw places like the Grand Canyon, Yellowstone, and Yosemite, I was eager to become a part of such a great country. And um, I've made it my life's mission and work for the last 25 years, I'd say, to convey that great love to as many of the American and world public as possible. It makes my life so worthwhile. You know, I've heard people say they're looking to find their purpose. My purpose found me, and it's just been more and more wonderful. And because my background is in journalism, and my husband Frank's background is in, in business, we set up a consulting company called Earthwise Productions. We got our information into um, the black press, into the New York Times, into NPCA magazine. So we did a lot of writing and publishing. When I found out that there was such a thing as national parks and saw these beautiful places and then saw that they were devoid of black and brown people who, in my estimation, needed the freedom and the respite and the inspiration and the joy and the glory more than any other, you know, segment of society, I got really offended. I called my best friend since high school, and I was telling her about all these amazing places that we had seen and how beautiful, and she was like, what are you talking about? What are you, t what are you talking about? Nobody knew. Our, our friends who were college presidents, our friends who were network anchors, our friends who were newspaper publishers, none of them knew that there was such a thing as a national park system and that it belonged to all Americans. And then as we got involved with the conservation movement and we were invited to serve on several boards, I realized that the people who were operating those non-governmental organizations needed as much of an education as the black and brown people who did not know that there was such a thing as national parks. So we'd be at, at sitting at board tables and we'd be talking about the subject of more inclusion and people would be saying, well, we all know and love and support the parks. And I'm like, excuse me, no, we don't all know and love and support the parks. Half of the population doesn't know that there's such a thing as a national park or a national park system. I didn't know until I actually stumbled upon it myself. You know, so that was the um, that was part of the frustrating part. That people stuck to what they knew. They presumed, they extrapolated that experience to all Americans. And you know, I'm being kind when I say that because they must have noticed there weren't any other black, there weren't any black or brown people out there. So clearly, you know, the experience could not be true for everyone. And I would talk and I would pour my little heart out. And then many times. People would listen to me very, very patiently. And then when I stopped speaking, the conversation would just pick up right where it had left off before I started speaking. And, you know, a lot of um, Americans of color report that that is their experience in many um, situations where they're the, the only one at the table, where there's not a, an equal diversity of, of voices or representation, you know? Based upon race, people in America have completely different experiences with almost everything. It's like parallel worlds. And so when I came to America in 1978, immediately I started looking around for, well, where are the natural places that I can go to be, you know, happy and comfortable? When you're in Grand Canyon, it's like your face, your visage, your countenance changes. There's a light that comes up on you. There's a freedom and a radiance. Radiance, that's the word. It gives you a radiance. Every human being, every living creature, 
everything that has bread should feel at home in the Grand Canyon. Now, personally, as a as a black woman, I know that there are times when, um, you know, people like myself don't necessarily feel comfortable or safe in some places that are way off the beaten track, but I reserve the right to be at home anywhere in the world. I belong in the world, so I belong at Grand Canyon just as much as I belong at Denali or in the Everglades or any place else. Our second guest is Steve Arnold. Dr. Arnold works in education year-round. He's a university professor and a summertime interpretive ranger. But in the context of this podcast, interpretation does not mean language interpretation. Rather, National Park Service interpretive rangers support park visitors in creating their own meaning and personal connections to cultural and natural resources. My name is Stephen Arnold. I'm a park ranger sometimes and a professor other times. I am an associate professor uh, at a university in instructional technology, and that's my primary job. And then in the summertime, I work in interpretation in the national parks. I grew up in northern Idaho, a very rural community. Part of the time, going to a a school, elementary school, that was uh, two rooms, uh, kindergarten through eighth grade, so that might give you some sense of how small a community it was, two classrooms. I was one of six uh, with a single mom. We didn't really get out and go to a park, even though I, I grew up uh, four and a half hours driving to Glacier, about seven hours to Yellowstone. Uh, cost is a big inhibitor uh, to visiting parks. Um, you know, travel and that sort of thing at that point wasn't really on the table, but we were in the mountains. It was a nice place to live and grow up. Fast forward, I went in the military at 17 years old after I graduated, uh, got hurt, sustained an injury there, and then uh, spent a few years adjusting. I don't know, I'm a pretty resilient person. Being a wheelchair user, when I go to a national park, uh, including Grand Canyon, uh, you know, I, I notice if there are others like me or there are not. But uh, it it often strikes me when I am going into parks, whether I'm going there as a visitor or working, that um, uh, I don't really encounter as many individuals with disabilities as um, Vector possibly hope to see. And I think the the longer I've been in a wheelchair, the the more that I notice this. There are individuals that just won't make eye contact or acknowledge my hello. I've had that happen. I've been out roving with colleagues before and have visitors that that will totally look over me to talk to the other individual who's not in a wheelchair. Um, And so it certainly makes me do a lot of thinking about that, that, uh, there's no way I can really separate that out. Uh, you know, I try to analyze, well, maybe it isn't because I'm in a wheelchair. Maybe, you know, there's some other reason. And I think about the National Park Service mission to preserve unimpaired the natural and cultural resources and values of the national park system for the enjoyment, education, and inspiration of this and future generations. It's kind of a 
a lot to wrap the brain around. I like how uh, if you if you ever gone into Yellowstone, the uh, Roosevelt Arch, Teddy Roosevelt, it pared it down to for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. And what I go to is it doesn't say some of the people. This is the people. And if you're a wheelchair user or if you're able-bodied, whichever it may be, you're all the people. Up next is Naruti Shastri, who describes herself as an avid outdoors woman, educator, strategist, and engaged scholar. My name is Naruti Shastri. I'm calling in right now from Virginia, where I grew up. So I am an immigrant of the 1.5 generation. I was born in India in a city called Ahmedabad and moved to the States when I was about six years old. I have two younger sisters. Um, I identify as a woman of color. Um, I use she, her, hers pronouns. And in my kind of working life, professional life, I serve as an educator and a sociologist. I've worked at uh, a few different institutions of higher education um, over the years in sort of the first iteration of this thing we called career and have really worked to advance place-based community engagement and um, racial justice and restorative justice. In general, I'm really passionate about transracial solidarity movements, uh, anti-colonial resistance, all of that good stuff. When I was little, my parents took me to Shenandoah, um, a national park in the state of Virginia. And once we got there, even from something as small as the looks that you get when you're on a trail to feeling like you're constantly being watched and almost policed when you're interacting with spaces, it just, I think that was the moment that I began to feel really uncomfortable um, in, in green spaces and natural spaces. And one of the things that I think has been contested and complicated for centuries, or at least since the United States was quote-unquote founded, is, is belonging in natural spaces. I think it's been really a battleground um, for a lot of folks of color. We see a lot of um, policing and uh, criminalization and just a sense that, you know, there is one right, quote-unquote, way to employ, be with, be alongside, use nature and natural spaces. To me, the perspective shift about the Grand Canyon didn't really happen until we had the opportunity to visit the Parks Museum collection. The, the woman who was speaking with us brought out this bowl. Hundreds of years ago, these, these bowls were made in, in fire, and she kind of turns the bowl inwards, and we look right into it, and you actually see the front fingerprints of, of this woman who had made this bowl. And that just felt like such a poignant moment. And I think really linked into when I began to feel belonging in, in a space that, as vast as the Grand Canyon and feeling like natural and human history are these inextricably connected entities. You know, for a lot of folks of color, and especially for me, nature provides this space of healing and restoration. Nature is its really, really helpful for me to be in green spaces outdoors and feel like connected to something that is much larger 
than myself. Um, and I really am so grateful to all these folks who have encouraged me to, um, to just reparticipate and reintroduce myself um, to something that was once lost and is now found. And it wasn't until I took the time to reflect and think about these, you know, micro experiences or moments in my lifetime that, and that I really understood like, wow, so much of that sense of belongingness really came from more positive experiences of my racial identity in natural spaces. You know, when you see people who look like you who are doing things you didn't think were possible for you to do, it's a transformative experience. Our fourth and final guest is Alima Benali. She is a retired park ranger who's worked at both Hubble Trading Post and Canyon de Chez, two national park units located on the Navajo Reservation in Arizona. Alima is a founding member of the Council for American Indian Interpretation, a subgroup of the NAI, or the National Association for Interpretation. My name is Alima Benali. I've lived on the reservation most of my life, on the Navajo Reservation. I am Navajo, full blood. I have two children, a daughter and a son. I am currently a caregiver to my mom and her sister, my aunt. We have a great time. <laughs> That's what I've been doing since I retired. I've been caring for both of them, and um, we have we have a very good time being together here. In the summer of 1973, I was 16 years old, and we had just gotten out of school for the summer, and a neighbor came by. She lived behind us across the alley and uh, came by one evening, and she said there was a job opening for students. And um, she said, come to Hubble tomorrow and just let them interview you. You'll fill out your application while you're there. So I thought, okay. So I went there, applied, and um, I was immediately hired. And by the end of summer, I was doing a tour every hour. (laughs) I became a permanent employee in 1986 and just stayed in interpretation all the way to retirement. Yeah, I spent half my life, maybe, um, working with the National Park Service, and the other half was being a kid. (laughs) We were um, not in uniform. We were wearing traditional Navajo dress, and I didn't like that because people, they would try to speak loud to us. They'd speak slowly, and so I didn't like being in traditional Navajo dress. I I wanted so bad to be in park uniform so I can be treated differently. And uh, I was so happy when I went into uniform. It was a very, very different kind of attitude and respect when, when I went into uniform. From then on, I spent a lot of personal time paying attention to how people would speak how they wanted to be spoken to, how how they reacted to speakers, and how they responded to certain words. I was very attentive to that, and I realized 
that as I would speak about Hubble and, and Navajo people, there seemed to be a a gold ticket to ask any kind of question of me about American Indian cultures, tradition, history, like anything, anything they wanted to know. And when I answered, I was answering from my own little experience with my family, and they took it as an all-out answer for all Indian cultures in the United States. And it was an incredible, incredible whoops kind of responsibility. It's like, no, 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 I didn't mean that, didn't know how to take it back because I didn't have the right words to um, say this is my only experience. And so as I go on, the questions become more challenging and and deeper and sometimes very personal. And um, there's a friend, a very close friend now, who was down the road. I was at Hubble. Wilson Hunter was at Canyon de Chez. And we had both heard about each other through park visitors. But it would be years later before we would meet. And when we did, we, it was kind of funny because we both said, so you're Wilson Hunter, so you're Alima Benali. And um, from there, we, we began to talk about the questions we were getting from visitors. And, oh, my gosh, it was so incredible. We couldn't stop talking about the challenges it brought to have people ask us of cultures of other people. And so we started talking together and and we reached out to other parts that we knew that had uh, American Indian interpreters and they were going, yes, what you said, it's true. Help, what do we do? So we started to meet. We had a visitor from the NAI Southwest Regional Representative, and he goes, you know what, you guys should go big. This, You're not the only ones with this, this discussion. This needs to go um, nationwide. We named ourselves the Council for American Indian Interpretation. We were just so happy to share what we had and and realize we were not the only ones with that challenge that we were able to call on each other and, and um, share the experiences we were having. So we really had a great support of people around us and we were better cultural interpreters because of our support. What is next? Where do we go from here? How do we move beyond explicitly naming challenges to collaboratively addressing them? All four voices, Steve, Naruti, Audrey, and Alima, in their own words, bring us home. Once again, this is Steve Arnold. Figure out a way to let the parks represent Americans. If you look at anything from ability or disability to cultural diversity, there's so many different uh, 
subgroups of people that the parks are lagging. They've kind of lagged. I think initially when the parks were created, the visitor was tended to be more of a middle class or higher uh, financially speaking, predominantly white visitor, most likely not too many uh, individuals with disabilities. And we've made some headway, but not as far as we need to, especially if you look at the demographics of the nation. They're substantially different. I think from the park service standpoint, they need to gather data and not, there's this tendency for us to try to do what we think somebody else needs. And my personal experience with that, that's not the right way to do it, is somebody else can't begin to understand what somebody in a wheelchair needs if they're not in a wheelchair. They can start. They can get some good ideas. But oftentimes they miss the mark. You know, I'm t- I, I'm talking with you. I use a wheelchair, but I can't begin to understand the needs of everybody else. And so I think to get enough uh, data gathering uh, from folks that have needs, uh, get them involved in the decision making, and then a renewed investment in uh, making these adaptations. So, you know, if you're looking at the accessibility side of things. Once you've done research, uh, whether you have somebody to go with or not, uh, just the bottom line is to go, to experience it, and see these uh, natural wonders. Once again, here is Nairuti Shastri. There's a movement to feel like belonging is more expansive and imaginative than it has been. And, you know, even with this podcast, right, like there's still work to be done. And I think so much about feeling welcome is beyond diversity. I think we, we really have to start with the conversation around inclusion, right? Folks can't feel like they belong in a space if that space isn't constructed to be inclusive in the first place. I think that exposure really needs to begin from a young age I think if young people don't feel like they can access the national parks, we've already lost the battle. I can imagine, you know, for someone who is my parents' age, if they've had time and time again these microaggressive or just straight-up plain aggressive interactions with natural spaces, it's going to make them much less likely to, one, participate in land and natural spaces themselves, and two, advocate for others to be able to have access to that space as well. So I think we have to acknowledge this like ripple effect that doing diversity and inclusion work has and equity work has on entire communities of people. If I were superintendent of Grand Canyon National Park, I think one of the centerpieces I would hope I could work on as well as, you know, other staff and really encourage folks to center is this idea of reckoning with history. To me, that reckoning isn't just, it needs to go beyond, you know, simple land acknowledgement. It actually looks like moving land and resources and redistributing that ownership in a way that is equitable and the land goes back to folks that rightfully own it. Again, this is Audrey Peterman. Everybody's going to have to be a little uncomfortable if we're going to move forward together, you know, because right now it's a painful place we're in. 
we can no longer have this separation of who is considered to be worthwhile to be in the parks or who is considered, you know, to be, to have that sensibility, that sensitivity towards parks, you know, and that always excludes non-white people. We can't have that anymore. I would say, look here, freedom cannot be given. It must be taken. Okay? I am not going to wait around on somebody to make me feel comfortable somewhere that I want to go. And I say it is the responsibility of the National Park Service and a lot of these um, organizations that get a good deal of money to send out the message to, um, to non-white Americans that they are invited and welcome. But since that is not happening to the extent it should be, Thankfully, there are thousands of grassroots organizations of color around the country that are doing this work in our communities and bringing the message of what we actually have in the national parks and the public land system to our peers in communities of color. And so I heartily encourage people to find uh, one of these affinity groups. I find that one of the chief desires or requirements that people have is that they should see themselves reflected in the visitor group. Information. You know what I would do? I would invite a group of these people to invite their friends to come to the Grand Canyon. I would work on the media to get some PSAs done showing these people at the Grand Canyon and the wonderful time that they were having. I would invite them to do their social media campaigns. We would light up the world with images of people of color at Grand Canyon having a wonderful time. That's all that needs to happen, that people need to see that it's accessible and welcoming to others like ourselves. But I'll just say to people, take your freedom in America, okay? Take your freedom because, you know, nobody's waiting around to give it to you. And our final guest, Alima Benali. Change how the National Park Service communicates the canyon experience. Prime the visitors so they know what is here and how to be a guest in this place that welcomes every living thing. The natural world is for every living thing to find its own niche to survive and thrive. There are some places in every culture, there are places that are, have different levels of significance for accommodation, for medicine, for, well, life-sustaining, life-giving life, life resources. And so people regard these in, in different ways and they use them for their own survival. These places are accepted as a gift of life and greatly appreciated. These places have their own song because they have their own special kind of life force. So they must be approached with reverence and humility. So you approach just like when you're trying to introduce yourself to a dog, to a horse, you reach out gently, and you let them know you mean no harm. So when you come to these places, you come with offerings, 
with blessings, with thanksgiving. People will have a song, a prayer. They may have done some fasting before they arrived, and then that trade is made. You make your offering, whatever it is, and then you take what you need. And then there's that mutual exchange. There is respect, protection, there's life, there's food, there's medicine that is given and taken. And so there's uh, like a mutual protection that is given from the canyon, the river, the mountain for, for, for the people, for the family, for the individual. Once you're there, you've already, you've already been invited. What drew you there, what brought you there are different circumstances, different people, different times. But in the natural world, in the spirit world, you are called to be there. There's a reason for you to be there. Every now and then, I long to go back. And there was a medicine man that told us one time, if you have a longing, you don't know why. Maybe you've been there once, or maybe you hadn't even been there before, but you have a longing to go to the mountain, to go to the river, to go to maybe a certain particular place you have a longing. He says, because... Before we were human, before we were flesh and bone, we were spirit people. And these were the places that we belonged to at one time, and we longed to go back. It's our spirit that draws us back that way. And so I think these places call us back because we are a child of the earth of a certain time we don't know of as a spirit. And so we go back to these places to renew our spirit, to renew ourselves for however long that needs to be. So I go back to the Grand Canyon every now and then and stand at the edge and just let my presence be known. I'm here to be acknowledged as a child of the earth and that I'm here to recognize the majesty of the ocean, the mountain, the canyon, the rivers, the desert, whatever those places may be. We want to extend a full-hearted thank you to all of our guests. We are so grateful for all that you shared, the grace that you showed us, and your openness. Here at Grand Canyon, we also gratefully acknowledge the native peoples on whose ancestral homeland we gather, as well as the diverse and vibrant native communities who make their home here today. Let's keep this conversation going. Who feels welcome in your own community? And what's next in your own scope of influence? For more information on accessibility in parks, affinity groups and natural spaces, and much more, please reference the show notes attached to this podcast. And one more thank you to all who added their voice to this project. We are blown away. I don't know how we did it as a team, but man, we, we got some really, really great uh, voices to uh, agree to participate in this podcast. Alima synthesizes it best. Oh my gosh, wow, wow. <laughs> <laughs>